When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Audiobook Club is sponsored by David and Goliath, the number one New York Times bestseller by Malcolm Gladwell, author of Blink and Outliers. David and Goliath is the perfect gift for the giant slayer in your life, and it may change the way you think about the world around us. David and Goliath, on sale now. And by The Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Art of Storytelling. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash ABC. Welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club's discussion of We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review, and I'm here in Slate's DC recording studio. Joining me here is the fabulous Hannah Rosen, a writer for Slate in the Atlantic. Hello, Hannah. Hello, fabulous Dan. And joining us from our New York studio is New York Times Magazine staff writer and co-host of the Politics Gab Fest, Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. I feel like I should be part of this fabulous fest, but I think I'll just be my normal self. I guess you're also fabulous. (laughs) First, I want to start out by talking about that decision to keep it from us until page 77 that Fern is not a person, that she's a chimp. To me, it felt like really smart as a way to structure the novel, as a way to make sure that we really see Fern's humanity and that it impresses upon us how important she is to her siblings before we get distracted by the fact that she's not a person. But did it work for you guys, Emily? It did work for me. I think it's the only way for us to really absorb the idea that Fern is a sister instead of a pet. And, you know, in recommending this book to people, because I've started pushing it on everyone I know, because I really, really liked it. I don't want to tell people that it is about a family with a chimpanzee in it, because I feel like the less you know coming to this book, the better. So I hope everyone who's listening has already read it. Whoa. Hold on. There's a chimpanzee hanging from the sea on the cover of this book. <laughs> yeah, but I don't never... think I don't think she's actually hiding it from us. I mean, the suspension of belief is a subject in this novel. In other words, the fact It's one way in which her father tries to restrain her from talking. And her talking is one way in which she tries to get through the sort of waspish repression in the family, which she doesn't fully understand as a kid. And so there's a little bit of archness. Like she has to know by making publicity all about the chimp and putting a chimp on the cover that she's kind of asking us to do something, but we're not actually doing that thing. We're kind of – we're in a mutual collusion to pretend that we don't know, which works at some level because it does draw you in emotionally, but you know the book is about a chimp. Everybody knows that. Well, but there's a whole thing going on with this book. Like, So when it was published in hardcover, there was not a chimp on the cover. And the publicity material was not all about Exactly. Like in this world, she actually thought that we would not know that the book was about. I mean, even the reviews were not like they didn't do some massive campaign. Maybe you can only do that if you're like a big blockbuster movie. Yes, if you're the the crying game, basically. Right. To warn reviewers, don't give it away that Jay Davidson is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you have to absolutely not know there is no chimpanzee in the story. That's not what I meant. But I feel like 
as Dan said, the way the book is presented allows you to minimize that knowledge in your own head and goes with the introduction of Fern as a chimpanzee later. You can feel that that's what the writer wants you to be thinking about. And so I went with that. And at the same time, I was, of course, like playing with my own awareness and wondering if it was like a little bit too forced and contrived. But in the end, I bought into it and felt like all of that playing was part of what she was doing. And now I'm talking about Karen Joy Fowler, the writer, not the narrator of the story. Yeah, I agree with that. I think she wanted us to play with it a little bit. Like she knew it would be out pretty quickly. I was thinking the whole time of this great Jeffrey Goldberg column, which I always think about called When They Were Monkeys. And it was making fun of a New York Times front page story, which was like, they're in love. You know, they have moved in together, blah, 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 blah. And wait, readers, they are monkeys. And meanwhile, he's like, there's a picture of a monkey that accompanies the story. <laughs> there's like a caption which says this is about monkeys. So like the surprise factor is kind of ruined. So yeah. it's a little bit like that. This is a structural problem that nearly every work of fiction in the modern era that deals with some sort of unlikely thing at its center, that's premise is based on some kind of unlikely thing at its center will always face, right? Because the publicity gets out there, we find out about it. And so, yes, this book does a good job of playing with that in a way that I think if you are lucky enough to come to this book with not even knowing that there's a chimp anywhere in it, I think you will be deeply surprised and enjoyably surprised by that reveal. As I think some readers really were when they first came to this book, when they came to it in hardcover, for example. But I think if, as most readers now... Uh, if you know that there's a chimp and you know that Fern is a chimp, you do enjoy the sort of playfulness of it. I've been thinking specifically of that moment when Rosemary's in jail and she is looking at the bars of the cage and she confirms that they go all the way up to the ceiling because she says, mm -hmm. I can climb pretty good for a girl. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of like little sort of chimp-like bits embedded in there that I think really resonate if you know and are sort of little Easter eggs for you if you know going in. Now, but I must confess I didn't know. Because I'm an idiot, but not because this was effective. <laughs> I just, this was like a book I just kind of picked up and vacation. You made fun of me for I not know. knowing, and you didn't know. Totally. Honey. I even picked up the paperback, which has a picture of the chimp on the cover, and I just like didn't, I'm just dumb. And so I sat and read the book, and I came to part two, and I was like, oh, snap, Fern is a chimp. God damn it, Hannah. <laughs> I cannot believe that you presented yourself so wildly, <laughs> diametrically on the other side two minutes ago. Oh, okay. Anyway. <laughs> so I had another sense of revelation about the story that mattered a lot to me, and it has to do with the point you guys were making about language. The topic of language is almost a character in this book because the narrator talks a lot about how she went from talking constantly as a child to not speaking. And yet in telling the story, she is obviously speaking again. And that's supposed to be part of her trajectory and her growing up and making sense of her childhood as the sister of Fern. And only along the way did I start understanding that the reason she talked constantly as a kid were that she was being studied and there was this legion of graduate students following her around, testing her, acting completely fascinated by every word she said. And that idea, too, of being a test subject as a child was so interesting. And it's actually, I think, dealt with with a fairly light touch. But I really, really responded to that. Yeah, there's this sense as well that one of the other reasons she talks so much is because she experienced this being a test subject as a child simply as sort of a long five-year competition between her and Fern to see who could do things first. Because that makes sense as a way a kid 
would identify this that that matters a lot to kids when they can do things and and how they measure up to other kids and so she had this other kid in her life this hairy kid and this other kid was better than her at everything she could climb faster she could run faster she was stronger she was clingier she could jump higher she could do all the things that mattered except for she couldn't talk but rosemary could talk and so rosemary embraces that right as the way that in this study which she views as a competition she can win a little bit and that's also a meditation on where love and intimacy comes from you know the competition the being together it doesn't necessarily come from the talking about it it just comes from the kind of holes like one is standing up for the other one is filling in the things that the other can't do and it's those unconscious interactions which bond the two of them not the talking. Right. And the physical intimacy too, right? I mean, I thought those images of all the touching, because that is something that we are familiar with about chimpanzees, that there's this grooming and touching and that fingers are so much a part of their beings. And you really get a sense of all of that, both in photographs that Rosemary refers back to and just her very tactile descriptions of her relationship and her experiences with her sister. And you also get a sense of how all the things that we humans do to build civilization, to build relationships, get in the way of that. I mean, I was thinking to myself, yes. what is this book about? And I landed on this. This is where part five begins. There's many Kafka quotes mm -hmm. sprinkled throughout. And he says, nowadays, of course, I can portray those ape-like feelings only with human words. And as a result, I misrepresent them. So there's a way in which constantly in the book data, like the kind of data that the scientists are gathering, all these words that are happening, they kind of paper over what's actually real and important and true. And it takes, you know, all the way till the end of the book until you get back to what's real and important and true. But that's delivered through words. I mean, the words definitely still have a power for her. She's finally sort of dealing with this at the age of 40, way at the end of the novel in 2012, or 38, I guess, by finally using words, by finally being able to speak again in a way that she didn't for much of her adult life, by preparing for a publicity tour, for God's sake, but by publishing a book about her own story that is purportedly in her own words. And that is how she is sort of making things up to Fern. That is how she's making things up to her mom. That is how she's paying for Lowell's defense, because he's been caught. And so I think that just to say that the book is an argument against words as an effective way of coming to terms with anything is not exactly the story it's telling. I think that it's exploring it. Isn't it twofold that on the one hand, as you're saying, her humanness, her growing up is dependent. It's totally word bound. And, and of course, you know, the kind of more meta issue here is like, this is a book and we're all reading it and the tools of books are words. And yet at the same time, there is such an intense yearning for, I think, what Hannah was alluding to, this notion that there are these other ways to communicate and to be with another creature in the world that are animalistic and wordless. Well, the book also contains a lot of tricks. So what you just said, Dan, about the end of the book is interesting, and I hadn't thought of that, because there's also her mother's published work, which is explicitly phony in a sense. Not phony, but it tells like the happy story. She right. says it the leaves out. The baby book story. The baby book story. It like leaves out, you know, the pain and the grief and the loss and everything bad that happened. So the words can tell a version. Like they're much more controllable. Maybe I was thinking they don't necessarily get you to the elemental. But you're right. She does end the book by saying, well, I did finally get to tell my story. And this is the story. But she also ends the book 
with kind of physical visits to Fern. Yeah, but visits where she can never touch her. The devolution of that relationship from one where they are all over each other physically and they're so close and part of each other's lives in that way, the transition to the way that humans have to be with animals as adults was really potent, I thought, mm -hmm. and really interesting. And and even that scene, God, that horrible scene where Lowell, the older brother, finds Fern in this research facility in South Dakota and sneaks in and confronts her, basically, after the family has abandoned her for months and months and months and months in this terrible place. And the physicality of that is super intense, that she grabs him and puts his hand in her mouth and won't let go, and another chimp smashes Lowell against the bars. And it really struck me a lot, and it reminded me the way that a kid can deal with an animal and the way an adult can deal with an animal. It reminded me of, of a line, actually, in, a, in an interview that Karen Joy Fowler gave, where she's talking about the way that children's books deal with animals mm -hmm. as opposed to the way that adult books deal with animals and the way that adults do. And she talks about, you know, Templeton the Rat from Charlotte's Web and Winnie the Pooh and all these different animal characters that kids embrace. And she says, as children, we are encouraged to feel a great sympathy for animals and then expected to cast that off as a part of growing up. And that really seemed to me to be part of the story that this is telling, that as a child, Rosemary embraces Fern the way we as readers embrace animal characters as kids and the way we almost never do as adults. You know, there are not that many books that ask us the way this book does to really empathize with an animal, to really view essentially as human. In fact, it tries to trick us into viewing as human an animal and encourages us to feel that kind of sympathy and empathy for it. I thought that was really nice. Without anthropomorphizing the animal. Like right. that scene you just described, Dan, is actually has a lot of humanity in the sense of human emotions in that scene because what Fern is doing is exhibiting extreme loyalty. She's even at that moment protecting Lowell from the alpha male who's about to beat him up, which is what makes that scene poignant and heartbreaking. All right, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. From the best-selling author of Blink and Outliers comes the perfect gift for the giant slayer in your life, the book whose stunning conclusions will change the way you think about the world around us. It's David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. Breathtaking and thought-provoking, says the New York Times. Truly intriguing and inspiring, says the LA Times. Share the secrets of success in David and Goliath, the number one New York Times bestseller, on sale now. All right, let's get back to it. I have a question for both of you. I was wondering if one's relationship to animal love, which is a thing nowadays, like animal love to an extreme... How extreme? No, like, okay, ew. Do tell, so gross. No, because the Washington- well, I'm gross? No, yes, you are gross, because <laughs> I was having only pure thoughts, which is that in the Washingtonian, this month or last month was a story about a lost dog campaign of the most extreme kind. You know, oh, yeah, a woman yeah, who yeah. spends tens of thousands of dollars, you still see her posters all over Washington, D.C., looking for her lost dog. And the story didn't really get to the core of what this love- of this woman for this dog is about. Like, she has another dog. It was the big hole at the center of the story for me. And I wondered what this book was saying about animal love and if they're just, like, one kind of person and another kind of person. Like, a human who intuitively, instinctively understands love for animals because we are in a moment where we think and talk a lot about animal cruelty and the condition of animals and another kind of person for whom that's a little mysterious. So are you animal lovers in that way? Like, do you have a pet that you absolutely adore, even a childhood pet that you were totally attached to? I know this story is not about pets, and she says that explicitly, but but where do you guys fall on the animal love? I mean, I know that I have the capability for it because before we had kids, 
our dog was our kid. I mean, it, to a really weird, gross extreme, I think, like to the point of singing long lullabies to her and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it then went away when we had kids suggests that I'm not like deep in my heart a real animal lover. It suggests that that was a convenient placeholder who in my insane baby needing frenzy, I was willing to accept as a substitute baby. For some short period or it of time. suggests that there's something within us that can be sparked given the correct conditions, which is what she's saying, is that there is the spark. You can create a condition that seems to be artificial and scientific where a girl and a chimpanzee really love each other. And you can mistake that for something, you know, fake and fleeting, but it actually is something very real. And I think people do have relationships with animals that are as intense or close to as intense with other human beings. And in certain stages of your life, like the one you just described is one of them, Dan. Then there's also people who are older whose children have left and they're like intensely involved with their pets. And I sometimes, of course, it can seem kind of farcical. But honestly, I think sometimes it's like the best thing in the world because it makes people feel this sense of connection to another creature and unconditional love, which is a really beautiful thing. But is that really analogous to what's going on in this book? I mean, part of the whole message of this book, I feel like, is to stop judging animals according to human criteria, right? There's that scene where Lowell is complaining about how in all the years of his dad's research, he started with the baseline assumption that human communication is ideal And can we get a chimp to communicate at that level? Instead of starting out with the equally scientifically valid assumption that chimp communication works great as it is, chimps communicate with each other really well, and can humans start to operate on that mode? There's a sense that by constantly viewing animals as some form of subservient, inferior version of creature, whether it's because they're your beloved pet who you dote on, or because it's that they're a research subject who you mistreat, it still is not giving animals their full due as equal partners in this earth, right? Although Lowell is meant to stand for a distilled and slightly extreme version of this philosophy. That dis- and he is presented as crazy. Yes, but I don't get the impression that Karen Fowler disagrees with him. No, I actually do think she disagrees, or at least I think she's much more of a realist than he is. And maybe, again, it's that the book is saying more than one thing. But she is so clear-eyed about the violence of a grown chimpanzee, right? She's not saying that in the Garden of Eden, families should be able to raise a chimp to adulthood. I mean, in in fact, in interviews, she's been really explicit that she thinks that because by the age of 10, chimpanzees become too violent and strong, that it's wrong to take them out of their wild world. And that, in fact, this sort of idealized mixing that the book seems to be flirting with is not actually possible. And I feel like she also comes down clearly about that in the sort of denouement of the book, this question of, like, did Rosemary betray Fern by telling on her when Fern killed a kitten when they were both five? Yeah, that's what I was going to mention, that there's a moment when Data uh, kind of shifts back onto the side of truth, and that's around that, I guess, the screen memory that 
Rosemary had attached a narrative to this single memory that was like an of mice and men memory when Fern had killed a kitten and she had let that be known to her parents and then that's why they got rid of Fern and that's why her beloved brother Lowell hated her and ran away. That was Fern's entire narrative around this rupture in her family. And then she later learns that's not true. And how does she learn that? You know, by kind of adding more data to that picture, she finds out that in fact Fern had tried to bite the ear off a baby cousin. I think it was a cousin. Mm-hmm. And Fern had generally moved into that moment, which happened in all these chimpanzee experiments. I mean, this is actually true when they right. reverted back to a chimpanzeeness, which the humans were trying to breed out of them by teaching them, like in the case of Lucy, the famous one, how to drink tea. And Rosemary blames herself for telling her parents that she was afraid of Fern. But what she imagines that she should have said in her kind of hindsight five-year-old self, this is on page 270, she says, this is what I meant to say, that there was something inside Fern I didn't know, that I didn't know her in the way I'd always thought I did, that Fern had secrets and not the good kind. And that essential alien, foreign unknowableness is something that I think Fowler is, you know, she's got a lot of clarity about. Otherwise, this book would turn into some kind of mushy, sentimentalized soup. I think she's embracing it, in fact, but that's also why I think that the connection to an individual animal in the form of young Rosemary's connection to Fern or this woman in Washington's connection to her dog who she is willing to spend thousands and thousands of dollars, all of those, I think, are being posited by this book, as you guys say, as, in the end, dead ends in the way that humans and animals should be relating. And Fowler in an interview basically has said, as you say, Emily, no, humans should not keep chimpanzees in their households as family members. It's a terrible idea. You should leave them with their moms. And that, I think, is in the end what this book has to say about animals is that feeling empathy for an animal and understanding its place in the world is different from loving an individual animal, whether as a sister or a pet or a whatever. And that One makes sense and is probably the way that we ought to be going about things on this earth. And the other is is an essential sort of perversion of the actual way that humans and other non-human creatures probably should coexist. But that doesn't make any room for pets, right? I mean, this seems species-specific to me. Chimps are wild animals. They are not pets. For the reasons we've been talking about, Fowler comes down against them being pets. But I don't think she would have the same judgmental, rigid approach to dogs and cats. It just doesn't make, especially dogs who are bred to be loyal and relate to people so intensely. What about research animals? I mean, because that's what the science and sort of the ethical issues of this book sort of revolve around. I mean, on the research issue, she comes down in like the most logical place, which is to say, don't do it unless you absolutely have to, right? I mean, she has Rosemary celebrating a New York Times headline in 2011 when the government announced now we're only allowing research on chimpanzees when there's absolutely no other choice. And that seems so clearly backed up by the emotional heft of this book. But I don't think she's at the point of saying, like, no more research on animals, period. They, you know, live in God's kingdom, were created on the same day with us, are our equals, and the Animal Liberation Front is completely justified. Why do you think that she has Lowell deliver that speech in the Baker Square? the world's most unlikely place for an intense heart-to-heart between a sister and brother. (laughs) Why does she have him give that whole speech in which he basically seems pretty rational, in which he is... I would say that Lowell would disagree with your 
assertion yes. that, that some animal research is totally warranted. And she presents his viewpoint pretty rationally, but then only afterwards does she have Rosemary tell us, oh, by the way, he seemed crazy. Right. And he said all these other super extreme things that will make you think he's not credible anymore. Right. That really bothered me because it seemed to me to basically be like Karen Joy Fowler to some extent washing her hands of what I sort of suspect the natural result of reading this novel should be. The natural result of reading this novel should be a belief that it is not the place of humans to research on animals no matter what. Right? Shouldn't I totally disagree. I don't think that at all. I think the book makes much more room for like gray area and ambiguity than that. No, it just calls the person crazy who says that. I don't think there's gray area. <laughs> you mean, Dan, because it so totally calls into question humans' dominion over animals. I mean, the genesis idea that, you know, there are animals and there are humans and we are different and we lord over animals and that's kind of a right. That's the way the world was created. That The book does not believe that idea. Yes, and also that it's extremely skeptical about the ability of research to actually accomplish anything of note as mm -hmm. well. And I mean, there's research and there's research, right? And there's that great line in the in the book where she specifically notes that there's anything that is like less conclusive and scientifically rigorous than animal research, it's human research. But maybe but for both if... those reasons, yes, that is what I feel is like the logical endpoint of embracing and loving this book. That's really interesting. Now, I don't think that it doubts research completely. This chimpanzee living in my home and being domesticated is a specific strain of historical research that happened in this country in the 50s, which we all now, we as a culture, understand to have been folly. So you could think that that strain of research was crazy yeah. without thinking that medical research, say, which uses chimpanzees, is also folly. Yeah, but and and I'm probably wrong, at least in the sense that Karen Joy Fowler's dad was a psychology professor at the University of Indiana who worked with animals, and her daughter researches sea lions. Mm -hmm. So obviously, she's right. not like 100% anti-animal research, but still. But don't you think the book is better for her divorcing herself from Wool's point of view? Because, I don't know, that would seem kind of disappointingly shrill to me. Don't yeah, me. exactly. Yeah. Like if she had done a kind of Jonathan Safran Foer, like, don't eat animals kind of book, if that had been the strain in this book that would have been a lot less yeah, interesting. Yeah, it would be super preachy and much less interesting. Whereas, like, one of the things I just thought was so compelling about this book was the way in which these relationships are not, in fact, idealized. And, I mean, if you think of sister relationships, those themselves are usually really complicated and have lots of, like, tug of war in them. And so it would be a disservice to the amount of attention in the book to siblinghood to oversimplify it and turn it into some kind of like, you know, bromide. All right. I'm going to pause right there for just a second so we can talk about our great sponsor, The Great Courses. As anyone who listens to the audiobook club knows, learning is not something that just stops when you're no longer in school. We read these books because we want to learn about the world. We tell stories because we want to tell people stories about the world so they can learn about our world. And that's the motivation behind The Great Courses, which are these big, amazing, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors from around the country. We have a special offer for audiobook club listeners for the Great Courses course on the art of storytelling, which is a really great fit for listeners to this podcast because you obviously love storytelling, you love great stories, and this is a 
course, an audio or video course that teaches you how to tell your own stories in interesting ways. It gives you sort of big macro lessons on how to create characters and how to develop your voice and how to build a plot from the ground up. But it also gives you really great micro-level suggestions, stuff on how to use language, and even for when you're delivering stories out loud, how to hold yourself, how to hold your body and your hands, how to use your voice to create a new character. It's pretty great. It's just one of over 500 topics that The Great Courses offers, including history, science, stuff on photography, and more. You can watch or listen anywhere and anytime on any device. There's no exams. And we have a special offer for listeners to the audiobook club. You can get 80% off the original price for the Art of Storytelling course. The savings is only available for a limited time, so please don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash book club. That's thegreatcourses.com slash book club. Once again, for 80% off the Art of Storytelling. So please use that URL so the Great Courses know that you're a listener and that you found them through us. We're really grateful to them for being a sponsor, and we hope you guys enjoy this offer. All right, let's get back to our discussion. A couple of things I want to ask. One is, it's clear that the disappearance of Fern in this novel creates a rupture in the family the same as if, like, a sibling had died. You know, a kind of grief and Worse, disruption. as if a sibling had been given away. Now, why? Why does that happen? That's the kind of central plot point in the novel is, you know— Fern goes away and it's it's just horrible. Like it sets everyone off on a life path which is fairly extreme and just kind of destroys this family. Is it because the grief can't be acknowledged in the same way as it would be? Is it the uncanny valley problem? In other words, if a child had been given away, we would all recognize that to be horrible. But this is a kind of stunted grief, like it's a grief that can't be told or talked about in the normal ways. And that other people can't relate to. It gets wrapped up in the secrecy in this family because Rosemary feels to blame because she told her mother she was afraid of Fern. And Lowell certainly does blame her. But since she's five, she doesn't have any tools for working through all of that. So there's all of that going on. And then I think there's also just this sense of the broken promise of a parent to take care of one child right. right and then that makes her feel deeply shaken and insecure about what this family is and who her parents are and whether they love her there's an analogy that isn't ever i don't think made in the book but which this story really reminded me of which is you know once upon a time and i guess this still sometimes happens if a child in a family is severely developmentally disabled once upon a time they would just be sent away right they'd right. some early year they would be sent away to a home and maybe you would see them once in a while or maybe you wouldn't see them at all if you lived in certain places, maybe you wouldn't even talk about them at all. And I sort of feel like the trauma that's done to families where that happens is basically exactly the same as the trauma that's done here. Right. And right. it's a trauma of a kind that you don't have an easy story to tell about. You say, oh, we were raised with this monkey, and then we had to give the monkey away. That doesn't really explain how deeply you are traumatized right. by right. that event. And meanwhile, everyone thinks you're kind of weird and unappealing because the Uncanny Valley has opened out in front of you because you were raised with the chimpanzee and actually you are different in right. ways that other people find hard to relate to. So I have a question for you guys, which is, is it curious or telling that we've spent almost half an hour talking about this book and we haven't even mentioned Harlow once, the character who is I was going to mention it because she doesn't really this... belong. Yeah. No, but she's a prop, right? She's a device in a way that I thought was the flaw. Of she the is book, a device actually. that takes up a lot of pages. And it was like every page spent on her was one page too many in my view. Yes. 
Huh. Anyone want to defend her? Well, I was thinking about Harlow in regards to the structure of this novel, because she begins in the prologue by saying that her father told her to start the story in the middle. So there is a way in which this novel kind of starts at the end, goes back to the beginning? And yeah. No, no, no. Is that quite right? No, no it starts it, at the middle. It starts, starts at the middle because she's in college, and then it goes then to the beginning. Then it goes near the beginning And it begins five, with Harlow kind of- back. Right. Then it goes but back. Harlow first shows up as like trashing a cafeteria, throwing food around in a way that allow you don't. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't get this at all as I was reading. But looking back, this is Rosemary's invitation to go back to her own like wild chimpanzee led side, and she like dashes a glass of milk on the floor and gets herself arrested. Right? She in fact mimics behavior in the way that she used to mimic Fern's behavior. And Harlow is playing the role of Fern. I mean, it's funny. Harlow reminded me of the parody of Silicon Valley guys when they like walk into a meeting and say like, we just have to break shit. Like I'm the disruptor, <laughs> you know, because she was kind of the disruptor. Like that's what she yep. is. She's the person who Rosemary's just going along kind of dully in college, not particularly doing well, lots of repression, not talking about anything, still hasn't faced the reality of what happened to Fern. And then in comes, you know, CEO Harlow, of <laughs> what's the correct Silicon Valley name for the company that Harlow would be the CEO of. Um, she comes in and, you know, breaks shit, and then the novel can begin. I agree that she was necessary structurally, or that something like her was necessary, but I just wish she was not such a pain in the ass and such a drag. Like, every scene with her just made me feel like, come on, Rosemary, there are so many more interesting people in the world who we could be spending the time in our novel with. A bunch of them are in your family. Because I had this sense going through it, she's going to reconnect with Lowell at some point. It makes sense that she can't reconnect with Fern, but she's going to reconnect with Lowell. And so I was just like marking time, waiting for Lowell to show up. And when he did, everything became so vivid in this novel other than Lowell sleeping with Harlow, which Jesus, come on. But no, they had to sleep together. But I, you know, I have to say I almost gave up because I was dumb and didn't know that it was about monkeys. I actually read the first part and was a little bored by it and I yes, almost gave up. And then I agree. got to the second part and I was like, whoa, this is completely interesting. But after having read the second part, I understood Harlow a little better because there is a disconnect between Rosemary and Harlow. And maybe that's the human version of the chimp human relationship? Am I trying too hard here that Rosemary's kind of <laughs> imitating the behavior of someone who she doesn't fully understand and never will fully understand and isn't completely fully understandable to her or anybody else, isn't really a suitable companion for her, but she just kind of moves in parallel along with this person in the world that is a relationship that she could be comfortable with that a lot of other people couldn't be. And that includes physicality, right. like Harlow sleeps in her bed, she talks yep. about Harlow's hair on her pillow, her vanilla scent like there's just something she's chasing in that relationship there's a way she's behaving which is a way that she is familiar with yeah and then they're relating through the, a ventriloquist dummy which also was a device but brought us back to this whole question of voice and language and communication yes i agree hannah that you are right oh, i will also say that it was a million times more satisfying to hear you say that than it was yes, to read any of the scenes of <laughs> But nevertheless... Right, the first section of the book works intellectually after you have read the rest right. of the book, but as you're reading it, you feel like you're kind of plowing through, right? But yeah. nevertheless, we would all recommend, yes? Yes, absolutely. I really thought it was the best book I'd read in a long time, and the flaws of it almost made me feel more fond of it, too. 
And for anyone who has listened to this, wipe your brain clean. <laughs> Forget <laughs> that this is about a monkey. Go in like Hannah Rosen. <laughs> go in like Hannah Rosen. Because you can miss that <laughs> little chip dangling from Maybe the it's a metaphor. Maybe it's back. just like, oh, it's like growing up in a monkey house. <laughs> right. Uh, all right. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation of We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is My Brilliant Friend the first of a trilogy by the critically acclaimed, increasingly beloved Italian author Elena Ferrante. Read it and join us for our discussion on January 9th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash ABC. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode and catch up on previous ones. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audio Book Club in the iTunes Store, and don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon and Hannah Rosen, I'm Dan Quayce. Thanks for listening.